This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the seventh episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know you can't breathe and swallow at the same time? You kind of can for a few seconds, but then you basically can't breathe and have to stop. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. Ernest Hemingway said that. This case was suggested by an anonymous listener via the contact page at britishmurders.com. We're in the town of Landon in Basildon, Essex this week, not London. Landon. I struggled to find some facts about Landon, so here are five quickfire facts about Basildon instead. Number one, since March 2010, Basildon has had a miniature famous white Hollywood sign that reads Basildon. At five feet tall, the sign is one ninth of the height of the Hollywood original. Number two, Basildon had a great influence on the 1980s music scene, with bands Depeche Mode and Yazoo originating in the town. Number three, Basildon was one of eight new towns created in the southeast of England after the passing of the New Towns Act 1946. Number four, in 2008, a National Lottery funded heritage trail was started to highlight the town's 1960s architecture. And number five, Basildon was the setting for the BBC programme White Gold, starring former Inbetweeners cast members Joe Thomas and James Buckley, Simon and Jay. The approximate population of Basildon, according to the 2011 census, is 187,600. This week's story delves into the life of Ricky Wyatt, a man whose vibrant spirit and endearing personality left an unforgettable mark on those who knew him. Born on October 18th, 1971 in Basildon, Ricky grew up in a close-knit family alongside his three beloved siblings. The Wyatt household was filled with love and laughter as Mum Jean welcomed her first child Tony to the world on February 16, 1969. Soon after came Julie the following year, followed by Ricky 12 months later. Finally completing their family dynamic was Cara, born in 1983. Growing up in Basildon as a stereotypical middle child, Ricky formed strong bonds with his siblings that would last throughout the rest of his life. He displayed his nurturing nature by taking care of his sister Julie. He often took time out of his day to prepare tea for her, demonstrating an endearing sibling bond that many perhaps long for. He also ensured to spend quality time with his younger sister Cara. Their shared passion for video games brought them closer together as they immersed themselves in several fantasy gaming worlds. From an early age, it was evident that Ricky possessed a mischievous spirit and infectious laughter that brought joy to everyone around him. The family home was brighter because of his presence. 
One memorable incident occurred when Ricky accidentally pierced his foot with a garden fork while diligently tending to his grandma's garden. Despite his pain, one can imagine Ricky making light of the situation as he did with most things. He had a unique ability to get a laugh out of anything. Jean has described her youngest son as being a self-assured, carefree and bold young man. He embodied the essence of being a Jack the Lad. This title was earned through countless shenanigans that simultaneously frustrated and amused those fortunate enough to witness them. The ever-present twinkle in his eye made it almost impossible for anyone to stay mad at him for long. He had an uncanny ability to melt away any anger or frustration directed towards him. Ricky consistently went out of his way to help people during times of need. Anger and confrontation just wasn't his style. Friends and family often described him as someone who wouldn't hurt a fly, emphasising his peaceful approach to life. Knowing that makes the ending of his story just that more devastating. As with most people, Ricky's life wasn't perfect. For all his positive traits, the one thing that led to Ricky wasting his life, according to Gene, was his falling prey to the allure of drugs. They undoubtedly led to his downfall, with Gene saying, I found it hard Ricky took drugs because I did not know anything about drugs and I was always worried about him. Heroin and crack cocaine became Ricky's regular companions and a series of criminal convictions soon made matters worse. Those two Class A's are the most prevalent drugs sold in Essex if you weren't aware. Essex police actually launched something called Operation Raptor in May 2014 in response to the town's snowballing drug and gang crisis. The reason for Basildon's current crisis is due to its location and transport links. It's extremely easy to get there from London by train as well as by road. The ease of access for gangs has made it prime drug selling territory. The aim of Operation Raptor is to disrupt and dismantle gangs who travel to Essex planning on dealing drugs and causing violence. It's estimated that at least 30 gangs are operational in the Basildon area alone and over 1,300 arrests were made within two and a half years of the operation's launching. In excess of 172 grand in cash were seized during that period. In 2017, over 100 people were arrested for offences including drug possession and possession with intent to supply. The drugs in question were heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, cannabis and amphetamines. Were those arrests effective? Have they stopped gang activity and drug activity in Basildon since? Of course, the answer is no. As recently as 2019, five men were arrested for dealing crack cocaine and cannabis on the streets of Basildon. The London-based gang was known as the Honeypot Boys and received a combined sentence of 19 years and 9 months for various charges including conspiracy to supply Class A and Class B drugs. I urge you to go back and listen to my interview episode with former undercover drugs operative Neil Woods from a few weeks ago if you haven't already. It will open your eyes to how futile the supposed war on drugs in the UK really is. The issue is that young teenagers, typically boys, find themselves lured into the clutches of gangs, enticed by the appeal of quick riches and a sense of belonging. They can make a minimum of a grand a day selling drugs, a far cry from the £83.36 you'd get working an eight-hour day on the UK's national minimum wage, that's 10 42 an hour. To make it worse, those stats are for people 23 years old and above. 
For 16 to 17-year-olds, the sort of typical age you see in these gangs, you're talking 5 28 an hour, £42.24 a day. I certainly don't agree with them doing what they do, but it doesn't take much reasoning to understand why they do it. Let's bring Ricky back into the story now. Among his most cherished roles was that of a father. He first met Zena Pithers when he was 15 and she was 12. Logically, they probably met at school. As they grew older, their connection as friends deepened to the point where they began a romantic relationship. Zena fell pregnant in early 2003, as far as I can tell, around January, with the couple's first and only child being a son born on October 22, 2003. It's possible it was 2002. I'm not 100% sure on the birth year there. What I do know is that the baby was born just four days after Ricky's birthday and was named after his dad. The bond Ricky Sr. and Jr. shared was unbreakable, a testament to the deep love that flowed between them. The young boy worshipped his dad, his eyes lighting up at the mere mention of his name, the mere sight of him. At the same time, Ricky Jr. was the apple of his dad's eye. Young Ricky's parents would eventually separate, but the attachment between father and son would remain as strong as ever. Tragedy first struck the Wyatt family on May 28, 1996. On that fateful Tuesday, Jean and the children were informed that Tony, the eldest child whom the rest of the kids looked up to, had sadly taken his own life. The details of what led to such a devastating event are not known, and I won't be speculating, but it for sure knocked Jean and the kids for six. Tony was just 27 years old. As we move into the main timeline of our story, September 2006, Ricky was living in Royal Court, Landon. It was a fairly recent move as he'd previously been living with a friend of his called Catherine Taylor at her house in Gaywood, an area in the heart of Basildon. 32-year-old Taylor was an unemployed mum of three who has openly admitted to having her own struggles with addiction, especially with heroin and crack. Her prevalence for those particular narcotics could cost her up to £130 a day. If you're wondering how someone out of work could afford such an expensive habit, Taylor resorted to stealing items from other people and selling them on to raise money for it. Living in an area where drug use was as common as drinking water, Taylor began using drugs in her mid-twenties after being encouraged to do so by her then-boyfriend. Things simply spiralled out of control from there. Whilst living with Taylor, Ricky would also partake in stealing and use any and all funds raised to purchase drugs for personal use. Often, the pair would have disagreements about the size of each other's drug stash, although they supposedly never fell out, according to Taylor. She has said of their living arrangements, Like all addicts, I would squabble with Ricky over whether his share of the drugs were bigger than mine. The alleged reason Ricky's tenancy only lasted a month was that Taylor said she wanted to get clean and his presence wasn't helping her achieve that goal. Soon after kicking Ricky out, a new man moved in with Taylor. 29-year-old Matthew Bolton of Elderland, another area of Basildon. Like Taylor and Ricky, Bolton had previously had his own fair share of problems with the police and had seen himself convicted of various crimes over the years. Drug, shoplifting and driving offences were the primary convictions received by all three parties. A key allegation within this story is that Ricky owed Taylor some money. It was a drug debt. Most sources available quote that as being for the token sum of £5, but Taylor insists Ricky owed her £15. She said, 
I am sure lots of people owe me money or a smoke. It's not like I go hunting for money. If I woke up one morning and I was in trouble, I'd get it off my mum or my sister. The money owed was thought to have been the motive for the events I'm about to describe, but they have since been dismissed and remain nothing more than a rumour. If you'd like to remember that as I go through the remainder of the story, you can let me know at the end what you think about that as the main motive. On September 1st, Taylor and Bolton started the day by stealing as many items as possible to raise cash to buy drugs. A successful series of thefts led to the pair acquiring a stash of Class A's and around £25 in cash as a little bonus surplus. One of the drugs Taylor had acquired was Valium, or diazepam, which works by increasing the levels of a calming chemical in your brain called gamma-aminobutyric acid, GABA. Definitely saying that wrong. She claims to have called Ricky twice that day to let him know what drugs she had to sell, knowing that his eyebrows would likely be raised at the prospect of acquiring some valleys. Taylor's story goes that she arranged to meet Ricky at half three that afternoon and complete the deal at one of their mate's houses. Ricky was also going to repay the outstanding debt he owed her, according to Taylor. A crucial point to note is that Taylor remains adamant that she didn't once raise her voice to Ricky during those two phone calls and had denied threatening him in any way. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. You've heard Catherine's version of events now, but what actually happened? That afternoon, Ricky was chilling with some of his mates when his phone rang. It was Taylor. One of the friends Ricky was with was 72-year-old Layla Warad, who recalled how shaken up Ricky was once the call had ended. Taylor had threatened to rip Ricky's head off if he didn't repay the debt he owed her, and he was worried that she would follow through on that promise. Layla was asked if she could spot Ricky a fiver to cover what was owed, and duly agreed to help her friend out in his time of need. The second call came soon after the first, with Ricky advising he now had what Taylor was after and an immediate meet was organised. A car park outside a block of flats in Little Lullaway, Landon, was chosen as the spot for the debt repayment to take place. The precise chain of events and what was discussed is unknown, but within a few minutes of arriving at the car park and being confronted by Taylor and Bolton, Ricky was subjected to a series of shouts which were heard by several nearby residents. Peering out of their windows, witnesses at the block of flats spotted a woman, who was flanked by a man, hurling abuse and spitting obscenities at another man. Taylor was said to have been snarling like a dog before attacking its prey. Pushing Ricky in the chest and bending him backwards over the bonnet of a white car whilst grabbing his top, Taylor proceeded to strike him in the head, before withdrawing a knife and stabbing him in the chest or possibly the stomach. She held him by the throat as she did so and shouted, Die! whilst Bolton restrained him by tightly holding one of his arms. Taylor then stood over a heavily bleeding Ricky and pointed the knife at him before quickly fleeing to a nearby blue Ford Fiesta and speeding away from the scene. The getaway car was spotted hastily leaving the area by salesman Sammy Inua, who happened to be in the area on business. Samir said, I was stood knocking at a door and heard the screech of car tyres. It drove on the wrong side of the road. There was a man and a woman in the car. It drove off in a rush. His testimony would later not be relied on in court, however, after he failed to identify Taylor from a police identity parade. 
Meanwhile, back where Ricky had received the phone calls, Layla was patiently waiting for her friend to return when she suddenly heard an abundance of sirens close by. As she swiftly approached where the commotion was coming from, she spotted an ambulance heading towards the nearest hospital. She had no idea at that point that her friend was dying inside of it. Another witness at the flats was 32-year-old Tony Ashton, who recalled hearing some noise outside in the car park and peered out of his kitchen window to investigate further. Taylor was heard by Tony shouting, You owe me money. I want it. I want the money. Ricky replied, I haven't got it. I haven't got it. Based on my findings, it appears as though Layla lent Ricky a fiver because that's either all he thought he owed Taylor or that's all Layla was able to offer. As we've established, Taylor said Ricky owed a 15 quid, so perhaps that £10 shortfall is what caused her aggression to spiral out of control. Then again, Ricky was also heard screaming, It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Which brings the debt motive into question. After hearing Ricky shout, She stabbed me! Help! Tony made his way to the car park and found him lying on the ground, covered in blood. Others joined Tony as they attempted to help Ricky as best they could, whilst also phoning the emergency services. Tony said, Someone called the ambulance. Over the phone, they asked my friend Lisa to resuscitate him. He died while she was trying to stop the blood. She was looking for a pulse on his neck. He breathed out. She put a hand on his chest and it stopped there and then. He didn't die at the hospital. I watched him die. Frustrated at the operator's abundance of questions and how long it took the ambulance to arrive, 20 minutes according to him, Tony has been traumatised by witnessing Ricky's death. An ambulance spokesperson has since claimed that Tony's perception of how long it took the emergency services to arrive may have been affected by the stress of the situation. In a statement, the spokesperson said, Crews were on the scene within seven minutes of the call and the patient was at Basildon Hospital within 32 minutes. Crews worked on the patient because they felt there was a chance of saving his life despite his very serious injuries. By the time Ricky arrived at Basildon Hospital, he had succumbed to his life-threatening injuries and was pronounced dead on arrival. With just over a month until his 35th birthday, the father of one's cause of death was confirmed by a subsequent post-mortem has been caused by a single stab wound. Quickly securing the scene and speaking to the witnesses mentioned a moment ago, a picture of what had gone on quickly emerged to the detectives. Soon enough, Taylor and Bolton were arrested, as was a third party, another male, but he seems to have been released shortly after and doesn't appear to have been involved. Zena, Ricky's ex-partner and mum to his son, only learned of his death after receiving a text message from someone who informed her of what had happened. I can't imagine how shocking and heartbreaking that must have been. In the space of four weeks in August and September of that year, the murder of four men occurred in Basildon. First, 32-year-old Simon Goddard was murdered on August 27th after being punched, kicked, stamped on and beaten with bricks and concrete slabs. Ricky was then killed on September 1st, with 41-year-old Clifton Robinson murdered two weeks later after being stabbed multiple times. Finally, 30-year-old Jay Clark was stabbed to death on September 22nd and died in hospital the following day on what was his son's second birthday. The string of murders plagued Basildon and sent shockwaves throughout the county. Drug prevalence and gangs being everywhere was one thing, but multiple murders within a month? Even the town's most hardened residents were stunned by that one. 
Taylor attended Basildon Crown Court in early 2007 to enter a plea regarding the murder of Ricky. She opted to plead not guilty, meaning a trial would be set for later that year. Bolton was recalled to Basildon Police Station on February 7th to answer his bail before being rebailed subject to further police investigations. Two months later, he pleaded not guilty to his charges of assisting an offender and stealing a car. By the time the trial came around that autumn, both parties continued to deny any wrongdoing. The trial at Basildon Crown Court was overseen by Judge Clegg and lasted five weeks before the jury finally retired to consider their verdicts. On September 5th, Taylor was found guilty of murdering Ricky Wyatt and reportedly sobbed as the verdict was read out. Judge Clegg handed her a life sentence with a minimum term of 16 years whilst handing Bolton a two and a half year sentence after he was found guilty of assisting an offender. In his closing statement, Judge Clegg said, Sometime that afternoon, Taylor conceived the idea of luring Ricky Wyatt for the purposes of killing him. She killed him for some reason, a reason we will never know. I do not believe it was because of the debt which could have been £5 or £15. It would appear she was accusing him of something, otherwise he wouldn't have said, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. After the sentencing, Ricky's mum Jean said, I am glad justice has been done, but I am not gloating. My heart goes out to the defendant's families too. The verdict has given me closure and I can start to rebuild my family's life again. The most recent update in this case is from October 2008 when Taylor heard the outcome of her conviction appeal. Her attempt to have it overturned failed after three judges deemed her minimum sentence to be unarguable. Lord Justice Tolson, who considered the appeal with Mr Justice Griffith Williams and Judge Michael Broderick said, This was a premeditated attack with a knife, with intent to kill, and there is nothing in our judgment arguably wrong in a minimum sentence of 16 years. And that was the story of the murder of Ricky Wyatt. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know your thoughts about it. I've got five new reviews to read out this week. Liam Graham left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love Stuart's podcast. He goes into so much detail about each case he covers. Keep up the good work. Annie Northeast left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Great podcast, working my way through them, well narrated and very interesting. Pumpkin Spice All Things Nice left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Love the mixture of factual information and personal anecdotes to humanise the experience. I like it. I like shorter episodes as some true crime podcast episodes end up being hours long and it's hard to stay engaged. Mega Kylie One left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Congratulations, Stu, a fine podcast overflowing with facts and relevant anecdotes. Keep up the good work and don't go changing. I won't, Kylie, don't worry. And finally, Cat M, I think you're one of my new Patreon members, or one of my newer ones, left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, This is the only podcast I listen to, loving the accent, content, and episode length. Thank you, Liam, Annie, Pumpkin Spice, All Things Nice, Mega Kylie, One and Cat for leaving the show such lovely reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. Please continue leaving star ratings on Spotify. I really appreciate that. 
If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my latest Patreon members, Claire McRae, Mark Davis, Catherine Marshall, that's probably you, Kat M, and Amanda Martin. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. Unless you want to remain anonymous, just let me know. But that's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.